Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Sarah. And this week we're doing a special episode. We're covering Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. And one of the reasons why we're covering it this weekend, as opposed to any other weekend, is because next week it's screening as part of the Fantastic Flicks at the Virgin Media Dublin International Film Festival. Uh, so we thought that it would be a nice opportunity to talk about the film, and we were very pleased. We extended an invitation to Sarah Hearn, who is the programmer of Fantastic Flicks, who programmed the kid as part of that. So thank you very much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Uh, but yeah, so just a little bit about the film festival, because I would be sort of a big fan. I've attended for a couple of years now. Uh, it's a great film festival, particularly like the range of programs that it runs. It does stuff and throughout the year. It takes films on sort of around the country. It engages in terms of running workshops with very talented individuals, like David Shires over this year. Um, and it has the, the the fantastic flicks, which is the thing that you run, the part of the festival that you run, mm-hmm. which is aimed at attracting sort of young That's kids right. towards cinema. Yeah, so we've um, I suppose developed the uh, fantastic flicks program over the last five, four or five years, which is great, and we've opened it up to younger audiences for the first time in, in a while. So uh, by doing so, we've involved I suppose kind of two main programs: one which kind of looks at family cinema and one which looks at kind of schools. And within the family programme this year, we've got kind of a broad selection. Uh, The Kid is part of that. And I suppose the reason why we've included The Kid is because the festival has always kind of been interested in um, silent cinema and kind of, uh, I suppose, archive cinema and and kind of new restorations. And we thought it would be a really nice idea with Fantastic Flicks growing to kind of open that up to, to kind of family screenings. And uh, I suppose, as with anything in the festival, we try to find something a little bit special, a little bit exclusive, and we got very special permission from the Charlie Chaplin family to screen it, which is really, really wonderful. And I was doing some some research um, at the time and came across uh, this screening uh, that was at the Lumiere Film Festival last October. And this was the first time that they had screened the kid with uh, this particular piano score by Maud Nellison. Um, and this will only be the second time that Maud is going to perform this score with live accompaniment at the festival screening itself. So it's going to be a really, really kind of unique kind of experience that you mightn't get to see otherwise, which is what the festival is about, I suppose. That's pretty amazing because actually yeah, the festival in the past has done a number of these live things. I yes. remember doing was it uh, Dawn the Dead with Goblin a couple yes, of years ago. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And last year there was the was it Behind the Cellar Door? Behind the Door. Behind yeah, the door, yeah. It was yes, a great German film. Yeah. It was yeah, indeed, yeah. very much underseen as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and the kid is a fantastic yeah. sort of uh, film. But just in case you are thinking about going, tickets are still on sale at the Virgin Media website. We're going to talk generally about the film. So if you yeah. haven't seen the film yet, if you're listening to this, don't worry. You don't have to switch off the podcast yet. Uh, but we're just going to talk a little bit generally, maybe give a bit of an introduction to it. Sure. Um, and just sort of, so like, what is it that like, drew, was it just that level of kind of timing that drew you towards the kid as a choice or was it something that you wanted to do? Sure, I suppose um, there's there's kind of two elements to that. There is 100% that kind of, you know, looking for something unique, something a little bit, you know, out of the ordinary and and certainly the, the idea of having Maud involved and her her adaptation um not only because she herself got special permission from the chaplain family to kind of adapt it but also because she had worked with some of the original collaborators with 
uh, Chaplin and Chaplin was I suppose uh, famous for being so you know particular and per like such a perfectionist about his films but uh, the people that he worked with you know were very much able to kind of prescribe to him and so pretty much you know being able to talk to those people was kind of like having an extension of you know talking to Chaplin and so she she adapted this wonderful piano score uh, for that very reason um, and the other element of that is when you're I suppose bringing new audiences in because as I said Fantastic Flicks is only in its fourth year you want to you know show people that the festival is you know you know aware of audiences and that you know wants to have both a broad appeal but as well as a focus on international cinema and I suppose Chaplin is just one of those people who kind of speaks to so many um, and someone who's very much in touch with their own inner child as well so just a real joy to, to show one of his films. It's amazing I was actually doing research for this and I discovered that like Chaplin um, in terms of like when he was working at Keystone which is where he would have started out Keystone never credited any of their players, but what they would do is when they had a new Chaplin short, mm -hmm. they would actually have a cutout of him in the lobby that they would stand up in order to help sell out shows because the face was just so recognisable, so ubiquitous. Um, in And this is something that continues to the present day. I think in 2016, there was a screening in Syria of the kid in one of the, the abandoned cinemas that they had for local kids as well as a way of trying to bring culture and joy back to a turbulent region. Like, it's amazing that that reach still exists. It's amazing. Yeah, he's sort of that kind of universal figure. And I think maybe the fact that he was a silent cinema performer as well kind of brings that universality to his films. But I think, um, you know, the Tramp is such um, a, a loved character and, and is one that people can identify with. Um, so that that brings a sort of immediate attraction, and and so many artists like credit their beginnings to him, like people like Jacques Tati, people like Fellini. You know, they they all kind of worship him, and I think you know he's had such an influence on on comedy, on tragedy as well, um, in kind of you know kind of contemporary cinema. Well, I mean, yeah. not to get too spoilery, yes. but a, a smile and maybe a tear yeah. um, in in the opening spell yeah. of yeah. the. Yeah, I don't think that really is too much. It's a, it's it's yeah. it's amazing as well, as as. As well, it must be a real um, uh, uh, badge of honor uh, for for as a as a collaborator to have that kind of approval because it seems like even even watching the opening credits, how much control yeah. kind of um, it, it, it happened. It was written, produced, directed, music composed yeah. by yeah. 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 Most so, of the credits outside exactly, of the other yeah, other yeah. kind of performances. Yeah, I think if he could perform every role in the film, he would have. He would, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the argument is that this is one of the rare films where Chaplin actually allows another person yeah. um, to have to be a comic centerpiece as opposed yeah. to existing purely as like a prop for Chaplin to use. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, this is famously... Chaplin's first feature length first film. feature um, like the Tramp I think had debuted he had a number of um, a number of kind of early appearances he started out at Keystone mm -hmm. I believe what happened was that they had a short they were doing which was uh, Mabel's Predicament that's right um, yeah. and what happened was that they needed a, a comic presence for that Chaplin had just signed up at the studio I think he'd done one film prior to that and they were like go to wardrobe find something come out do something funny and so he went in and he found the baggy pants the bowler hat because he was only what, what age would he have been 23 24 if even think about that age yeah 
yeah. yeah. He yeah. wanted the moustache to age him a little bit, to make him seem a little bit That's older. Right. And he just sort of came in and immediately sort of took charge of it. Famously, like the, the guy who ran the studio, he would cut the reels. So the idea was you had about a minute of footage as a comedian and you would get maybe 30 seconds of that in the film because not everything you do is gold. Mm -hmm. Chaplin was famous as one of the performers at Keystone where you, he would do a full minute of slapstick and the full minute would be in the finished product. Um, I watched like all of this stuff's available, by the way, if you're interested on YouTube because it's all pre-copyright uh, because it exists before Steamboat Willie. Mm -hmm. um, everything else will never, never, never go out of copyright. Yeah. But um, it has like the Auto Race of Venice, for example, as well, which is the first one that was released, which is like this early prank TV show thing where they're filming like at a live soapbox derby in like 1916 in Los Angeles. And you have Charlie Chaplin in the middle of this soapbox derby with just him and the cameraman in on it, uh, just wandering around into the middle of the race, flopping around, trying to get himself in front of the camera. And you have this sort of interesting dynamic between him and the crowd who have no idea what's going on. They're initially like, who is this guy? What is he doing? And like over the course of the six minutes, you get to see him almost win over the crowd. So one of the things about Chaplin as a filmmaker is that he initially didn't want really to be a filmmaker. He was a vaudeville star. And his original plan, at least according to his autobiography, was that he would use or parlay international fame in terms of like the shorts that he was doing and become an international, even bigger vaudeville star because this cinema thing's just never going to catch on, right? Yes. Um, it's amazing how accidental so much of kind of early <laughs> early cinema is. Like I, I know uh, kind of in, in January you had the um, Laurel and Hardy uh, movie, Stan yeah, and Ollie. Stan and Ollie. Um, and that it, that it, that it, that it was um, what's the name Hal Roach just kind yeah. of like looking for somebody and it's like well, I've got this guy and I've got this guy yeah. and I just put them together um, yeah it will, will it work I don't know we just do something now yeah. kind of yeah, it's, yeah I think he earned something like hundred and fifty dollars a week when he started out and then he just became such a popular feature. Uh, of those films in Keystone that um, he, you know, kind of grew in popularity and, and then when he was able to take control um, later on with United Artists as well, I suppose he just really allowed him, him, himself and, and a couple of other artists at the time to kind of take take charge. That's a, a part of Stan and Ollie as well is, you know, that they were disconnected in that in that sense from, from control over their own features as well because, yeah. you know, they were... Um, signed the studio, studio yeah. signed the separate studios yeah. eventually while yeah. the stand went his own way yeah yeah exactly so um, it's amazing that he had the amount of control that he did but um, you know I, I think people love those pictures for that reason as well I mean like, it's worth noting when we talk about the kid as well the kid's famously infamously don't want to say trouble because it turned out very well but the production cycle which allegedly like it lasted the bones of 18 months uh, cost $500,000. Um, at one point, Chaplin had to take the, um, the the financiers on like a glad-handing tour of the shoot and introduce them to the adorable co-star that he had in order to keep them from shutting down production. He went off and he went, he filmed A Day's Pleasure, I think, was a short that he filmed in the middle of it to keep the bank off his back. And he was going through a divorce as well while this was happening. Um, so at one stage, he literally absconded with the footage from the film. Yeah, and edited it in a, I think it's like a motel bedroom, um, like frantically. This, and again, if you've watched Inglorious Bastards, you know that the, 
like this stuff is highly flammable and volatile <laughs> and you have him frantically cutting it together and it's it's remarkable how it turned out it's one of the great films it's i think he was with mildred harris at the time and they he had actually uh, the two of them just had a son but unfortunately three days after giving birth the the, the son passed away um, which kind of puts a whole frame on this film. And I, I believe 10 days later, he was casting the, the starring role um, beside him, which is the, the role of the boy. And, um, you know, and, and that's the other character that you were talking about. Jackie Coogan is, you know, almost as much the star of the picture as um, Chaplin is. And I think he was very kind of fortunate to find him. He was attending performance by a virtuoso dancer, a friend, and this was this dancer's son and um he what he looked for was someone who could mimic him and that's what he found and jack was a, a mimic who could you know and you can see that in in the physicality like it's just kind of remarkable it's one of those brilliant kind of performances from a young child as well well this is interesting because what tippy hedron said tippy hedron who worked on one of chaplin's later films when he was a director she described his directorial style as comparison to say Hitchcock or whatever. Like Chaplin's directorial style was he would act out all the parts in the movie and you, the actor, would just repeat what he did. Yeah. And apparently, like, and he talks about this in his autobiography. Uh, there's a wonderful quote from the Criterion Collection. They have the edition of The Kid. And they read from a sample of his autobiography, which amounts to, and it, it's lavish in its praise of Jackie Coogan, but the most lavish praise that he reserves is, what I could do is I could stand in the middle of the set I could run through each of the motions. I could say, well, you put your hand behind you. You feel the cloth of a man there. You put the hand up. Oh, it's a button. You turn around. You look up. You look down. You turn back. You throw the rock in the air. You sort of scooch off. And he would get it. And he'd throw, like Chaplin would talk about the like, the like having worked with adults who couldn't do this. Mm -hmm. To work with a kid who was like precocious enough that not only could he do it, he could do it multiple times as each of the takes demanded, but bring an emotion to it each time which is, is absolutely remarkable. And again, it's arguably the only co-star that Chaplin has trusted in that way if you look at his films, apparently. So, mm -hmm. so I've read, I won't pretend to be an expert. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, th I think like when you when you see the performance, if you haven't seen it yet, um, there are a couple of scenes where, you know, it just looks like Jackie's behaving, not, not performing. And I think that's the wonderful thing about having children on, on screen is that that is often like, you know, the joy of, you know, can, it can either look stiff but obviously Chaplin had a way with his co-star that he could you know they had this great bond and, and there's so many um, amazing kind of physical setups that are really just the, some of the best comic pieces of the film and um, he, they just seem so in tune with, with each other it's, it's kind of a joy to watch on screen. All right I think before we talk about the film in a bit more depth uh, what we're going to ask is do you remember when you first saw this movie? Do you remember the first time that you watched The Kid and what was that like? Kind of just... Sure. Yeah. Well, I actually, I will be honest and say I, I hadn't seen it before I kind of came across um, the Lumiere screening. And um, I had seen, um, you know, some of other Chaplin's other films like Modern Times and um, bits of City Lights and, and also seen uh, The Dictator when I was in college. But it had kind of been a while since I kind of revisited um, I'm also studying a, a screenwriting class in, in Dunleary at the moment and um, one of the scenes that we had recently kind of an analysed was one of the opening scenes in the kit, which I thought was was really funny, you know, the kind of coincidence of the two of them coming together. But it was it was basically, you know, looking at the the kind of second scene, the, the very first one where you encounter the tramp on his, you know, morning promenade 
and you know what that sequence after that how how brilliant a piece of storytelling it is with no dialogue whatsoever and how much there is to learn from films like the kid and, and storytellers like Chaplin who just understood that so well with physicality and props and costume what you can kind of convey and how genuinely funny yeah, yeah. I think that, that sometimes kind of uh, um, strikes people say like myself who don't who, who don't watch um uh older movies kind of like as 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 much as as much as they like um to be surprised that the 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 kind of um that that older sensibility and kind of humor was it was it was still getting me i was watching i was watching this movie i feel like i'd watched it as a, as as a child but i was watching it again um this morning um and laughing yeah. Like, uh, uh, and 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 even in 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 that first scene, yeah. it just is so so many laughs kind of um, in so in such a short space well. of time. Yeah. Yeah. From 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 the from the very beginning. I mean, you know, we've got this kind of tragic sh- setup. You know, the the woman, um, you know, whose only sin was motherhood, and yeah. then you know, um, which you know, as we kind of talk about it a bit more, we'll probably compare a bit to like Chaplin's own life and possibly, you know, that there is very much his personal story in this film. Um, But, um, you know, I suppose after we see the heartbreak of the mother, you know, having to abandon her son uh, without, you know, kind of being involved in the the choice of it in a way, um, just being poor and not knowing how to deal with the situation, to then suddenly into this, you know, character, as soon as he walks on on screen, you know, the cane and the big shoes and, um, you know, the world of the story is established so quickly. We have the trash being thrown out of the window and we're like, okay, you know, there's trash being thrown on the streets. And uh, he pro- kind of approaches the, the screen and then more trash is, you know, thrown down and knocks a cigarette out. And then he picks out this, you know, cigarette case with all these mismatched butts <laughs> that are clearly <laughs> just found on the side of the street. But he treats everything as though he's not a trap. He treats it as though he is just like everyone else. Like it could be a sophisticated pack of cigarettes or cigars, but, you know, he kind of kicks, you know, his match stylishly with his foot and um, smokes it. And then he has these terrible gloves with so many holes <laughs> and patches. Um, but you'd swear he was wearing the finest leather gloves where he where he takes them off his hands. And, you know, the, he, he doesn't miss a beat. So I think he takes them off and he's, you know, smoking his cigarette or his cigar butt or whatever it is. And he goes to put them back into his waistcoat and he looks at them and he's like, nope, I'll just chuck them in the trash, <laughs> yeah, you know. It's as if he's seen these yeah. gloves for the first time yeah. and it's like, oh, these simply won't do. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, these aren't good enough for... <laughs> for mine, my standards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's 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 hilarious. So many just like kind of um, yeah, and and after and after that really kind of like poignant moment as well to be able to introduce comedy that, so quickly yeah, and so yeah. efficiently. That's worth noting. This is only fifty-two minutes long, at least in the cut that's publicly available yet, which yeah. is the um, the one that Chaplin went back in nineteen seventy-two and edited. Andrew's looking at me like this yeah. is the stuff that Darren likes talking about. <laughs> um, but yeah, because I was wondering to Darren, I was just like, so this is. This is a this is a feature length. Yeah, <laughs> one of Andrew's perpetual bugbears on the podcast is what exactly is a feature length? What qualifies as a movie? Um, it's shorter than an episode of Game of Thrones. Yes, or it could be eighteen hours long. <laughs> <laughs> it can be anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's because it's it's. It, but interestingly enough, that you say like it feels fresh and new. One of the things that Chaplin did when he went back is he edited it apparently to soften the role of the tramp. Now again, I haven't seen any of the material, but a lot of apparently the the tramp was a work in progress at this point. Like uh, in the shorts, 
He was a very variable character. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he had a family, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he had a job, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he could pay for whiskey and just chose not to. Um, but, uh, and apparently like that was still happening here. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is when he went back and he did the edit, he did a number of things that we may talk about in the spoiler zone, but apparently one of the things that he tried to do was to make the tramp more lovable and more sort of like immediately affectionate and stuff like that. And sure. it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you see that like sort of later in, in that scene, you know, he's trying to get rid of this yeah. baby and there's so many failed attempts that are just hilarious. You know, he encounters a policeman and clearly he's not on the favor of policemen in this world, <laughs> you know, and he tries to abandon it in some matron's pram and she beats him over the head with a stick. Um, but then when he, you know, he kind of kind of half gives up and he sits down on this curb next to a gutter and he opens up the gutter and he considers it yeah. half a second yeah. and you're thinking, oh, he's not going to, is he? And there's a kind of almost yeah. the breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, kind of yeah he, there is, at he the, does, uh, actually. Yeah. Will the camera, audience forgive yeah. me? Say like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're right, yeah. you're right. That's too far. Too, yeah. yeah. Um, but before we jump into the spoilers, I want to talk about it in more depth. The three questions that we usually yeah. ask of people who sort of are our guests and of ourselves, which are... Do you think that this movie belongs on a list of the top 250 movies ever made of all time? I do, yeah, I, I do. I think, you know, it's so hard to quantify what 250 films should be on a list, but from the point of view of what um, an amazing artist and kind of bringer of joy and uh, story and tragedy, you know, all rolled into one that Chaplin was, this is, you know, if you like his origin film, if you want to, you know, describe it like that. Um, and, and though I think people might, you know, select something like Modern Times or, um, you know, or City Lights or something. Both of which are on the list. Yeah. Both of which are on the list. I'm not surprised. Um, but I think this is, you know, the, his first feature, but it also says so much about who he is. So I think from that point of view, as, as you know, kind of one of the kind of early authors that it is, is an important film to be on there. Perfect. And Andrew, yourself. Yeah, I'm really glad this is on the list, um, and I'm look I'm looking forward to covering some of the other ones. I'm 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 glad that this is the one that we're starting with as well. Yeah. In chronological order, <laughs> exactly. Follow yeah. the arc as it's said. Um, yeah. Stepped away very... from some of the randomness. <laughs> yeah, because it's, yeah, it's a very clearly structured arc that Chaplin has. Although, yeah, there is an element of the meta narrative around this. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think it definitely belongs to be sort of on the list. Uh, would it be on your own personal list if you had a list of 250 films that? your own favorite would it be on there um i would have it on there for sure um i for the same reasons of where it would sit i'm not too sure but yeah it would certainly be on there yeah and andrew yeah i, I, I love all of my children but, um, <laughs> yeah I, I i um no it was it was it was a delight like i always say i know it's a bit of cop out that i i, I need i need more kind of like context because I, I i feel like i had seen this movie before but having have it uh, being being so close to it, oh, it's it, like it's a delightful movie. Yeah. I, I, I like it. It, uh, it, it would it would absolutely I wouldn't be mad at it. Not at all. No, it's great. Yeah, it's great. And, and I think yeah. it would be for me as well. I don't know if it's my favorite Chaplin. But it's certainly up that there. That is the question, yeah. That is, yeah. Well, just, we, start rating these when we do yeah. the others. I yeah. mean, if only there were a ranking system we could use for reference. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then finally the question is, and I think, I suspect we may already know the answer to this, given that you went out of your way to like organize a film screening with a live soundtrack so people could appreciate this. Mm -hmm. uh, would you recommend that listeners listening to this podcast who have or have not seen The Kid go and see The Kid? 
Absolutely. And of course, you should come and see it in the film festival because that's really the best way to see it is on screen um, and with live music. So, um, you know, it's just it's going to be one of those films that you won't get to see all the time in Dublin. So uh, absolutely, I would recommend. Just for listeners, it is in the Lighthouse on the 23rd yes. of February. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and uh, I believe... As we're recording, these tickets are selling relatively fast, so... They are. They're, they've been quite popular, but there's still some left, so, yeah. Perfect. Okay. All right, then, if you'll join us on the other side... Yeah, I, I, oh. spe- speaking as somebody who, who had to w- watch it at, um, <laughs> I think it was like four or five in the morning on YouTube. Um, <laughs> while does while, great while, research for the podcast. Yeah, well, eating kind of like some chopped up broccoli that I made for breakfast. Uh, don't see it like I did it. Um, do... do <laughs> But Do go to the uh, film screening on the 23rd. But I think it, it says something that even watching it would shock broccoli at yeah, 4.30 yeah, yeah, in the morning. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. don't chance it. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I would really love to know why there was chopped broccoli. Seemed like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> they go together like Charlie Chaplin's The Kid and Chopped Broccoli. Um, have you not there were other things. I, I, I don't <laughs> think it's going to improve people's view of my breakfast if I if I expand on like what else there is. There were some eggs. Cooked, right? Cooked eggs, yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Interesting right. combination. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. This could be a whole other podcast. I was, yeah, <laughs> so anyway, sorry. As, as so, post, yeah, if I were to recommend... Don't make my mistake. If I was to recommend one experience... Now, I admit I'm being, I'm being offered two very compelling ways to watch the kid here by my two panellists. I would probably go with the film screening with live musical accompaniment. <laughs> yes. Probably. Yeah, yeah. All right, so join us on the other side of the Spoiler Zone. Spoiler Zone. So, Sarah, what is the kid about for you? I suppose, um, for me, I I think of Chaplin when I see this film, and I think of his uh, childhood and his life, and I suppose it was kind of, you know, a difficult time for him his uh, father was an alcoholic his mother was um, in a mental health institution for uh, much of his childhood and I believe when um, Chaplin's brother returned um, from Sydney yeah Uh, he was doing some service there that he you know their relationship became really the most important relationship in his you know family life at the time and and I think there were periods of his childhood where he was very much impoverished himself, you know, starved of, of food and, and love. And essentially, I think that what that's what this is a film about. You know, that moment where, um, you know, he's sitting on the gutter and, and he finds the note in, in the child's bundle that says, um, I think it says... Uh, oh, yes, I think I wrote it down. Please love and care for this orphan this child. This orphan child, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, when you see that note, you realise that per- perhaps the tramp is also an orphan. You know, you piece together this, you know, connection between the two of them. You realise he's made this decision now that he's going to look after this child. And even though uh, he... He is living in poverty himself. He doesn't treat life as though it's poor. Everything he does has a sort of ritual and a kind of richness to it. And um, I think that's what he would have liked to have offered himself as a child. Not necessarily, you know, wealth and, and money, but just a loving home. Um, 
a, a, a food, you know, food on the table, um, which there is lots in this world. There's pancakes, there's maple syrup, <laughs> butter. There's some butter sort of... folded over in pancakes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a, the yeah. adorable sequence where he counts the pancakes yeah. and cuts one and gives it to the kids yeah. so that there's an even distribution. Exactly. As well. Yeah. Everything. No wonder shared the House on American Committee thought that he was a communist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But there's so much sweetness yeah. in, in, in those little actions in this film. I, you know, they have this massive potato slop. I don't know what it is, but at one point... Oh, yeah, you know, I wanted to know what that was, because yeah. it was looking yeah. better than my chopped raw broccoli. Yeah, yeah. 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 probably did. I, I like the idea that Andrew's doing like a culinary, like the Alamo yeah. Draft House menu for the kids. I was yeah. trying to figure out what it was. <laughs> <laughs> like, is there something like potato? Is there some yeah. mince in there? Is that some spaghetti? Or, yeah. Spinach? maybe yeah. yeah I don't know like Saga or something I don't know it, it was it definitely looks strange and in black and white obviously it's more difficult to to make out but you know they they have these huge like plates of food and then there's you know they, they sit at the table afterwards and he passes him like a little bowl of water and he dips his fingers and it's to kind of clean clean them as though he's at a fancy restaurant and there's some sort of I don't know um, movement that he does afterwards, and the two of them do it together. Um, the, yeah, wi- 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 wiping their hands on on the tablecloth, yeah. but uh, as as though they have napkins yes. as well. Yeah. It's a it's 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 a really funny premise that they kind of like this absurd sort of dignity yeah. that um, the 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 whole time. But it's not it's not just funny. It, it, it's it, it's quite kind of heartening as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing with, with Chaplin as a physical kind of vaudeville comedian, but as a pantomime as well, there's that wonderful contrast between the reality in which he finds himself and yeah. what he chooses to present, in that he quite literally has nothing, but he's able to affect the stature. You pointed out the example of like the cigarette case, which yeah. with the close-up in, you see he has absolutely nothing. I thought I had to pause it and make sure one of them wasn't a human thumb. Um, <laughs> but it, it has this sort of like, but because he behaves in the way that he does, because his actions are the actions that you would expect of a gentleman. And even like the costume that he has where he has the bowler hat yeah. um, and the cane, yeah. which are markers of like high status society in the teens. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this sort of contrast between what is and what he wants to be. You know, almost, again, almost like mine, where you're pretending that something's there, where it's like, oh my God, it's a glass pane, except in this case, it's like a good life. You know? He's, um, he's got this really good quote, I think it's in his biography about the, the cane. Um, and he says, the cane is very important for my character. It's my whole philosophy. I keep it not only as an emblem of respectability, but with it, I defy fate and adversity. The poor, small, frightened, frail and undernourished man I am on the screen is never the prey of the ones who torment him. Uh, when his hopes, his dreams, his aspirations vanish, he only shrugs, shrugs his shoulders and turns on his heel. It is rather a paradox to admit that this tragic mass has created more laughs than any other character on the screen or stage. And this proves that laughter is very close to tears and vice versa. So that, that's that kind of respectability that you're talking about. Like, you know, he's always, you know, head held high. And always, you know, you know, as you see in the fight scene, then later on, you know, always against someone who's taller than him, who's bigger than him, and somehow still comes out of the situation better, (laughs) remarkably, yeah. Um, And the same for for, uh, the boy's character, because, you know, before, uh, I suppose that whole scene is is just a great gag as well, but, um, you know, this boy comes and picks on him, and uh, takes the toy away. T- he takes the toy away, and then they it's have really this great fight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. 
he's about his half ass the Trump's. Size. <laughs> Let's go, Trump. Uh, yeah. yeah, the 250 has a recurring fondness for precocious and possibly violent kids. Yeah, um, <laughs> one of our early ones was 500 blows and really. Leon yeah. and stuff Leon, like that. Yeah. And yeah, and uh, there was another <laughs> one as well. Moonrise Kingdom isn't on there, but that sort of thing is sort of that sort of mood as well. But yeah, it's. Yeah, and, and it's, it's great. And it's a great performance from Coogan. Coogan, who had a remarkable life himself, actually. His parents were both vaudeville performers. Um, in fact, Jack Coogan appears in the film in multiple roles. He plays, for example, the derelict in the, um, in the shelter where they go to sleep. He's the guy on the bed behind him with his hands in his pockets, with that great gag where he finds the money and yes. Chaplin's like, put your hand in the other pockets. Yeah. Um, and he, he also plays the devil as well. Um, and what would happen is that, yes, yeah, so they tour together and stuff like that, the family. Um, and Coogan was an adorable child star as well. Apparently Chaplin considered having him under contract and working with him again, but thought that he was too good to do that. Like, which again, which is a kind of a, a heartening story. Again, all sorts of like psychoanalysis about whether, like, whether he saw Coogan as a stand-in for the child that he lost. Yes, um, yes. But he, he, wanted, he genuinely wanted Coogan to do well. He released him from his contract uh, and let him go out and find his own way. Uh, Coogan's mother, um, his remarried, they got divorced, their parents got divorced, she remarried. They apparently spent all of his income. Um, wow. They passed a law in, I believe, 1930, uh, which is called the Coogan Law, mm-hmm. uh, which basically governs how child actors are paid uh, to prevent stuff like that from happening again as a result. Um, and what would happen is Coogan hit his teens. Um, he was no longer cute. Um, and so there's an adorable picture of Coogan as a teenager visiting Chapman on the set of I don't know whether it's uh, City Lights or whether it's Modern Times, but it's him holding Chaplin in his arms. Um, and again, the two of them were friends famously until Chaplin died. When Chaplin came back to the States from exile uh, to get the honorary Oscar, um, they met backstage for the last time and apparently Chaplin was crying with tears at the reunion there. Uh, but interesting enough, Coogan served in the Second World War. Um, he went, oh. he actually served, he served in India of all places, um, despite being American, but he worked with the British Corps there. Um, he was married to Betty Grable. Wow. Yep. And he played Uncle Fester in the Adams Family. Really? Yep. There That's you go. Quite a career. It is a career. You can yeah. see the big eyes now when you say it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you didn't stay cute. That's <laughs> 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 what you're <laughs> getting at. But again, like, and I'm married to Betty Grable, the icon of the Second World War, Uncle Fester. Um, <laughs> but yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so yeah, and it, it's, you can see, like, the incredible talent that he has yeah. here. Because, like, I mean, mm-hmm. Chaplin is obviously Chaplin, but mm-hmm. Coogan is amazing. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. And, and there is one scene um, where they're separated um, that uh, I think a, a country doctor comes to the house and yeah. um, says, oh, you know, this, ca- this child needs proper uh, love and care. And he, he disappears and comes back. And I think it's the county asylum comes to, to kind of yeah. then kind of see what kind of living situation he is and takes him away and puts him in the back of this kind of pickup truck with a kind of wooden fence around it. And there's this awful you know shot of him crying and and like you know look heartbreaking yeah trying to you know get get back to the tramp and they drive away and of course you know just to make things more ridiculous Chaplin jumps up on the roof and follows him across you know so many rooftops and there's a great kind of you know reunion then and a wonderful touching scene at the end of it that kind of you know pays off you know all the heartbreak beforehand but um yeah, it's really touching, and then and then then you go into that scene in the you know the kind of shelter, which is just an, another kind of great setup. 
um, where a chaplain, you know, pays for his entry but doesn't pay for the boys and kind of sneaks them in through the window and then, uh, as yeah. I now know, is is his uh, father. father yeah, door, yeah. And there's this kind of wandering hand <laughs> as he undresses in his jacket and um, sneaks uh, Jackie under the bed covers and you know he is like almost like a whack-a-mole kind of peeping up kind of on different <laughs> sides of the bed as the kind of manager is trying to, to kind he's of discover. standing up in the bed and he's, yeah. he, he, he's trying to make out that those are just his <laughs> knees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Extraordinary tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not entirely sure of the physics of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's got this wonderful blend. I mean, it's been argued that the kid is one of the first films to blend uh, comedy and drama in that way. In that it is a genuinely funny, hilarious film. In fact, it's filled with all these hilarious set pieces that we pointed to. But it's also underneath it all a very earnest and heartfelt film. I mean, the, like it opens with a woman whose only sin was motherhood. I think its second title card after that is Alone. Um, like it's not, it doesn't kind of skirt the implications of what it's talking about. And in fact, actually, one of the things that was in the original cut of the film from, uh, you know, from the 20s, which was removed was that there was a plot where the mother got back with the father. So you had that sort of, yeah, almost like pre-Hayes Code morality ending where you know, obviously the kid was welcomed back to a family with a mother and father. And oh, isn't Jackie that great? burns her photograph. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an accident. Yeah. He, just, he doesn't seem too bothered about it, but it looks like it was an accident. Yeah, um, yeah. he kind of half burns it. Yeah. Yeah. This photo isn't as good now. Just <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I'll just bring the rest of yeah. the yeah. hand. Well, I guess I'm going back to painting landscapes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it, but he. he what is that exchange? <laughs> yeah. You're wondering that conversation. And again, again, it's worth noting that, like, despite the fact this is a silent film and all the characters are talking, there's actually relatively few title cards. And many of the title cards that do exist are those sort of existential sort of statements. It's like dawn, dusk a dream you know that sort of stuff as opposed to being conversations what is happening there <laughs> as, as, as a man who wrote a book about Christopher Nolan like, do you want to talk about the the, the, dream, the dream sequence the or is it too early um, it's, do you want to talk about the dream sequence yeah, I, 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 I was, I, I was kind of, um, I felt very silly because I, I, I was kind of scratching my head. I was thinking, kind of, um, how, how, um, this, this, this must kind of fit together somehow, <laughs> somehow with the, but uh, like, like I imagine, I imagine it's quite possible that they liked it so much that they wanted to include it. But I, I was, I was, I was just very curious, knowing, like, kind of next to nothing about the movie. And then this 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 kind of extended dream sequence. I was wondering, what, what, where, how how did this how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> and there's there's I don't actually know that much about the production of that of that dream sequence or the logic behind it, but it's been. I mean, it's delightful. I mean, it uh, is delightful, and it kind of it suggests a happy ending on Earth in terms of like it's and it's interesting that when he imagines heaven, like because that's what the dream is. The dream is he goes to heaven. Now, admittedly, you have all the vaudeville stuff with the um, with the with the demon and what does he call it vamp him um that's by the way that's charlie chaplin's second wife yes that's right. yes yeah, yeah. um yes which is maybe a little bit uncomfortable she was 12 or 13 when she filmed this sequence mm-hmm. she would be the leading actor in the gold rush with him as well right. um later on yeah, yeah. they wouldn't marry until she was 16 years old um and then would divorce um as chaplin did with his wives um but yes yeah, so she but that sort of thing with the, the vamping and stuff, I'm not entirely sure. But I like the idea of the tramp dreaming of heaven after he's lost the kid, after he's lost like everything that he held dear. 
And like you get the weird sense that runs through the film. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of religious thing that runs through it, obviously with the, the mother and the orphanage, but you have the cut of like the station, the cross. Yes. You have Christ carrying the cross. Yeah. Which is a, an interesting sort of choice there. The story is almost a Moses story to a certain extent in terms of it's a baby who gets separated from her from the mother. The mother positions it in such a way that she hopes it's going to an upper class house. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's D.W. Griffith's car, I believe. Is it? Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> of course, they would have all known each other. <laughs> yeah. um, I love the... the, um, the uh... <laughs> The kidnappers, or, sorry, the un unwitting kidnappers, because they realize they realize there's a baby in the car, and he's like, "I took out my gun." <laughs> and, um, like immediately, it's like you know what, we'll sort kind this of out. Comedia dell'arte type yeah. villains who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Incredible, yeah, right. yeah. They, and they, yeah, they're they're kind of like this kind of like really kind of um, stark kind of five and nine makeup yeah. that they're wearing. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the dream sequence is, is kind of out of, of place in a way, but it's it's kind of wonderful. Like the whole world explodes with flowers and everyone's bought a pair of angel wings. I don't yes. know, it's sort of like that medieval comedy or something yeah. about it, you know, the, the angels and the demons or something. Yeah. And know. he even does, like, he repeats a lot of the same tricks again. Like, yeah. And then he does, he brings back the actors. So, for example, the burly brother with yes. the very bad steroids I'm imagining is the only way I can or possibly explain or an inflation t-shirt yeah. or something yeah. um, <laughs> it's really funny but, um, I think he's okay then <laughs> <laughs> He, he sort of brings back this like Rob Liefeld type figure but he also like he repeats some of the beats as well yes. so there's the beat with their, the police officers chasing him where they run down you know the way where when they're earlier in the film they split and the yeah. police officer runs through the gap yeah. except this time he's got wings so he can jump up and I wonder if like there's a sense of like we talked about there the idea of Chaplin miming yeah. The idea of a better life, like, again, he's acting like he has napkins. He's acting like he has cigarettes. He's acting like he has food. This Maybe. is very revealing that, like, he dreams of heaven, looks like the world that he lives in, but it's just better. Yeah. He probably needs that, at that, like, at that moment more than ever, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And I think it, the nice part about the dream sequence is then when he wakes up on the doorstep and the policeman is shaking him, he still thinks he's flying, so his arms are kind of flapping by his side, is that uh, he, the thing is, is that he is going to wake up into that dreamland that he's imagined, yeah. and he's brought back, you know, through the alleyway, alleyway, and, you know, he kind of walks the wrong way around the, the poles, and then decides <laughs> he needs to follow the, the policeman exactly, and it's sort of like that like, little kind of trigger or that little hint that he's trying to say like physically i'm now following the same footsteps as everyone else and then he's brought not to the police station um after the child has kind of been reunited with the woman but to her home and and, and again kind of going back to that question of you know what what does um the kid mean to me it's it's that that final sequence where the door is open to him to a home to a place where there's love and there's a family or you know a kind of family um uh, and and you know he's welcome to it he's welcome to this world that he wasn't a part of before it's a really touching ending yeah um, it's worth noting by the way that uh, edna Perveance, who, right. who is who plays the woman yes she was chaplin's uh, leading lady at uh, sna which was the second studio at which he worked as well um, and apparently they got on very, very well. Um, and he, again, like, I think it's been suggested that a lot of the thing was that she was very willing to go along with whatever he needed in a scene and was very willing to mm -hmm. support him in that way. But she was a big star herself yeah. at the time. She, yeah. and she yeah. ended up, was she at the time? Or, or well, well, after the uh, film, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and with kind of subsequent films. I think she was in one more of his films, was she, later on? I believe they did yeah. have a yeah. sort of a recurring yeah. sort of like, yeah. Yeah. which is yeah. good yeah. when you have that sort yeah. of creative balance yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. 
It's also worth um, just actually just in terms of that and particularly the ending of the film and the kind of Moses introduction. It kind of like it's an interesting American dream style film where it's yeah. like like it because it's it's literally like the tramp obviously comes from nothing and ends up in this nice house, but the kid as well who comes from a background and like obviously and the woman the yeah. woman as well. You have the woman doing it off screen where she becomes an opera star. Uh, but you have this idea that like circumstances can change so dramatically. It's the rags to riches, you yeah. know, that is the American dream for sure. And uh, but it was also his life. He was the rags to riches himself, you know. So it's kind of mirroring his life again, um, which is interesting. Yeah. One, sorry, yeah, it's 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 he's finally he's finally kind of his his surroundings now kind of. Um, match his his the the kind of trappings that he that he has yeah. kind of like he even even when he when he wakes up in the bed and there's a big hole oh, in he turns the, it into a parka yeah and he looks so kind of um uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's amazing it's yeah. like he's wearing a smoking jacket in a mansion or something <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah. The, put, the, like put this, the coin in the gas meter as well this, uh, afterwards. this turkish look is very chic this <laughs> season kind of like yeah that he that he, he yeah he's kind of wearing this kind of throw yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things actually just about that that I've read, and I read this, this again, I think John Patterson in The Guardian argued that the thing with the tramp is that he's kind of interesting as a, as a character because he existed before the Great Depression. I'd always, like, again, as a kid, I'd been familiar with the tramp, but I assumed, like, the idea of the tramp was with the bindle, like, in the 1930s when everybody was homeless and everybody was starving and everybody was, like, working and that sort of stuff. But the tramp predates that. In, like, he existed during the Roaring Twenties, the aftermath of the First World War. Everybody was sort of booming. And one of the arguments that's been made about that for Chaplin is ignoring, like, the possible autobiographical backgrounds. Like, again, as you, as you point out, he had a very Victorian childhood. Um, and there's almost an element of Victoriana to that, like, walking through the streets having crap thrown on top of yeah. you. Um, but it's been argued that like one of the things about Chaplin is that he got very rich and very famous and during the First World War he did not serve um, and he resisted several calls to serve as well um, and he argued that like it was more important that he donate and that he do the war bonds commercials and stuff like that but there was an element after the First World War that Chaplin was seen as being sort of like champagne and above it all and above his station. And the tramp was a way for him to reconnect or to re-engage or to present like the other side of the coin to that. Right. Um, so this sort of like contrast that existed between Chaplin as this sort of like socialite celebrity, you know. And that he had a kind of a guilt over... You know, that he had a guilt or even that it was maybe a bit more cynical and a bit more sort of like practice and that he understood that again this is the idea of celebrity and image that he understood even then that like you need to get out in front of this and you need to present an image of yourself as the everyman because yeah. the tramp is is the everyman like everything in it is mismatched he can fit in any situation yeah. he's adaptable mm -hmm. like he can as you point out he can never be kept down yes. um, yeah, physically yeah. or mentally or, or emotionally mentally, yeah I mean I think Chaplin is is very self-aware uh, he's like especially in his use of silent cinema and you know when you go to something like modern times where he uses um you know sound for the first time where he sings you know the nonsense song you know it is nonsense he doesn't speak a word of english it's you know words i think it's like vegetables in french or something and you know portobello and bouchon and all these kind of words jumbled together and um I think that makes it all the more funnier and all, all the more kind of 
uh, poignant that you know he is aware of the use of pantomime and aware of the use of language and then he uses that in his you know dictator speech you know yeah. which is probably one of his most famous scenes then to say something really really powerful and and everyone listened because you know he spoke yeah you know? yeah i mean that was the thing is that he argued like when he was transitioning the tramp like as I, again you, you talk about modern times the, the gibberish song one of the issues that he had was he felt the tramp couldn't speak um like he he got offers to like he was suggesting he could bring him into talkies again modern times is a decade roughly after the, so several years after yeah. the jazz singer anyway like it, it's sound is now a thing that exists it's yeah. not a novel mm. thing yeah. but chaplin had kind of kept the tramp silent and one of the reasons why he did was because he was worried that if the tramp spoke with a british accent mm -hmm. it would t diminish him in a way it would disconnect him from the audience but then he allows the the factory oh. manager to speak yeah. on the intercom. So like he's he's you know saying this is you know the higher power up here yeah. and this is you know how they treat me as you know this this kind of every every man you know and how they treat everyone else. So he uses that again really yeah. cleverly to divide classes and and, and people. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting in kind of early um, uh, in in. In cinema, when 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 they've moved away uh, from silent movies, how they're not kind of how not every movie is 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 thinking. Well, we better use it to the, to uh, <laughs> to its maximum. To to its maximum. Like I I remember watching M, and there's kind of scenes in that where they use like complete silence. Like where I I think before the ambulance kind of um, uh, sets off. I, I, um, or no no it's it's the um, it's the uh, police siren, but before that, they they it's 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 a, 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 at at one point it's just a silent movie, mm -hmm. and to to kind of think of doing that, like they 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 they're 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 still kind of like thinking about how they use sound in movies rather than just kind of taking it as a given. <laughs> There's that scene in M where um, you know the announcement about the killer goes out, and you know you see newspaper clippings, you see posters on the side of lampposts, and like you know it's all about spreading fear. But you're right; it's not necessarily using sound. Like uh, that's the great thing about silent film, and I think that's what you learn from it is that you know in the kids every prop has meaning and has purpose. Um, like even that sign in the back of the shelter, I think it says, uh, uh, "Management doesn't take responsibility." Item stolen, yeah. not lost. <laughs> valuable stolen. Yeah. So, like you know, the most valuable thing in that room is obviously the kid. You know, so it's like, you know, saying something poignant. You know, without you know, over egging it. Like everything has a purpose, and everything is you know there for a reason. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's one of the great things that we can learn, and you know, from silent cinema that can sometimes be forgotten in, in kind of bigger productions that storytelling can be kind of distilled into props into to costume yeah. into the purest form as yes. well like I mean yeah. even the surroundings it was shot on location um, in Los Angeles it was shot near Chinatown I believe and it would a couple of years later the area would become kind of a tourist zone for like uh, Mexican immigrants and stuff like that that is you go down there and you sort of experience like Mexican culture in the sort of like same the way that you know like uh, Carol's is here for Irish culture that sort of stuff um, and it's kind of like uh, there's a, an excellent argument from uh, I think it's but it, it's John John Benson who sort of covers um, he talks a lot about location silent films he's talking about how you can almost feel the desolation like absorbed through the bricks because it's it's not a set yeah. it's like the bricks are worn down they're battered the place is dilapidated um, it looks 
Like, it looks like a run-down neighbourhood. Like, there's the great moment where he's walking, where he's picked up the baby after he's decided not to drop it in the little uh, hole there. And he passes he, the women. After he's picked up the wrong baby, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's when he's when he's walking, he passes the the women um, of ill repute, and they ask what's his name, and he he goes in, he pauses, and he comes back, and he says John, and it's like, yep, yeah, so that like that's the neighborhood where we are, yeah. and it really feels it runs through the film in a way that's like it's impossible to to really sort of like it feels despite the fact that there's no talking, there's not an excess of exposition, it just sort of seeps through the frame. It's remarkable. When 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 the brother puts his uh, uh, fist through the wall, you can believe that that wall was probably <laughs> going to give, yeah. <laughs> or the ba- the lamppost. <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> and then the awkward pause afterwards, where he grabs his arm and says, "Oh, well, I just hit something that was solid steel." Um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's absolutely sort of remarkable in in that way. In terms of like the the use of sort of silent storytelling um, and and things like that, it's. Again, remarkable how much Chaplin's able to communicate physically through a look or a glance. And how much, and again, you talked about how much, like, how much you, modern films could learn from silent films, but how much modern cinema has learned from the kid. Watching the kid, and again, I, I have a similar situation to Andrew where I thought I hadn't seen it before. Uh, I watched it for this podcast, which I felt really ashamed about and guilty about. And then I watched it and I was like, I'm fairly sure I've seen most of this. Like, there, I remember individual sequences of it. And I, I don't know if I have or if I just watched, like, best of. Mm-hmm. But watching it, there was a large element of, well, this is pretty much every mainstream film that exists, like, from then to now. The story of, like, the, the man with no... The devil-may-care guy with no responsibility who's, like, kind of a jerk but kind of cool and he's funny and he's witty but he doesn't look out for anybody but himself. And then he gets cast into a place of responsibility and he has to mature as much as this child has been put in his arms. It's, you know, it's Big Daddy, but it's also every Seth Rogen movie ever. And it's kind of remarkable that, like, that's 1921 and you're doing that and you're arguably doing it more effectively as well. I think there's, you know, something to be said for that because there's, you know, wonderful writers of dialogue. You know, there's the, you know, Aaron Sorkins and the Jim Jarmusch's of this world who, who or Richard Linklater films. Or, you know, it's, it's about exploring characters through conversation. But I think Chaplin's whole thing is about how action reveals a character. And that I think writers and storytellers can, can take so much from that, that, you know, it's that thing that you're saying, he doesn't miss a beat physically, you know, a raise of an eyebrow or, you know, a hand in the pocket or, you know, can, can say so much. And, you know, that it's what we, you know, it's not necessarily what we say, but how we act in a situation that reveals our character. And, and that's, you know, obviously the whole way through the kid, you know, that every, like, there are so many kind of contradictions from his costume with the baggy pants and the too tight waistcoat, you know, and what that says about him, to, um, you know, the way he moves around corners, you know, in that, that kind that of classic sort of like spin. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> running skidding exactly. almost. Exactly. Sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, never lets you feel um, sad for, for longer than that has to. And, and, and then the comic moments are all the sweeter and all the sad moments are all the sweeter as well for, for those kind of contrasts as well. A remarkable balance of tone as well. Like, and even in individual scenes, like the, the moment where like they're... And again, you know the, the sequence where the kid is... Where they, 
you know what streets we're working today. Which again, it's like again, it's it's a wonderful sequence that is both funny and heartfelt because it's it's like okay, well look at these two grifters. But you get the adorable sequence where he's cooking breakfast and then he's cleaning the kid's face and it's a really thorough thing. He goes see like he checks for lice in his hair and there's a great deal of affection there. Like it's very clear immediately in that scene that it's not just like he's taking this kid in and he does it because he feels responsible. He loves that kid. And then you have, you know what streets were working, right? And you do like, and again, this is the thing where you have kid criminals are just adorable, where he does the little thing where he puts his hand down, he does left, right, left, and it's like, yep, yeah, that's what we're doing. But the bit where he throws stones uh, through the windows, which is apparently something that one of, when Chaplin was coming up through vaudeville, apparently one of his co-stars actually did as a kid. He would have, yeah, apparently this was something, there's an actual scam that was run by somebody that Chaplin met on vaudeville and they would have traded stories about it or so it's been alleged. Um, but the, that you break the window and you sort of fix it up. But the sequence where the cop, having spotted the kid with the stone yeah. and the broken windows yeah. and noticed Chaplin is repairing the windows. Yeah. And again, that wonderful physical comedy where he's just flipping the sort of paste over his shoulder. But the moment where Chaplin's walking away and you have the kid running up to him. Yeah. And you have him kicking him away. <laughs> and like <laughs> multiple times. Most of <laughs> <laughs> It's not once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like if you did that from the kid's point of view, that's a really traumatic moment. That's yeah. like your father rejecting you. Yeah. Um, but like because it's played from the champ's perspective, yeah. where it's like this ador- it's this tiny little kid who could lead to like a jail sentence. Yeah. Um, it becomes adorable. And again, the physical comedy of it all, where it's the the way he kicks as well, where he kicks sideways. Yeah, yeah he ta- takes care to push with the sole of his foot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Much like so, the love comes so from the soul. Yeah, of yeah. so it's not to hurt the child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even the care in that. I do love the little touch, by the way. You, might, you mentioned earlier when he lights the, the match off his shoe. Yeah. Uh, in the five-year-later cut, it takes him, I think, two goes as well, which suggests maybe he's a little bit older, maybe he's a little bit less nimble, which is a nice touch as well. Yeah. And again, Chaplin was only 24 when he... was 24, 25 when yeah. he did this. That was yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah. I feel... <laughs> one of those things where it's like, yeah, I've accomplished yeah. some stuff with my life. A few years, yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But and I suppose, you know, he was someone who was just thrown into the life, you know, before he had he had a choice, you know, that he was performing, I think, from about 14. He was a, a dancer and performer, and then he was very lucky. He got um, a kind of cast in a Sherlock Holmes um, play where he was there for something like 18 months, and he learned from his co-star. So that's probably where his kind of mentorship of Jackie Coogan comes from, you know, that he had that experience. But yeah, by the four, by the time he was twenty four, he had been working, you know, in, in performance for, for, for ten years. Saying. Yeah, yeah, you know. So by the time the kid kid came around, um, but yeah, it's you know kind of extraordinary then that he had this relationship with with Jackie Coo that lasted for for so much of his life as well. Um, but yeah, that that scene where he's getting kicked away, it's just you just you're just kind of like thinking like, oh God, I really hope you know that no children were hurt in the making of this movie. But you really don't get that impression. Like even with all the physicality the whole way through, you just feel like they timed everything to perfection. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, famously, there when they're doing that scene where um, they were taking the the kid away and, and as he mentioned like to the asylum which obviously has sort of you know uh, connotations with uh, 
Chaplin's own mm-hmm. past with his mother mm-hmm. having spent time in institutions mm-hmm. and like the little fence at the back where he's like livestock where he's like as you point out like an animal almost but, like it or kind of inverting it yeah where the parent is being taken away from the child yeah yeah it's but that in, in, again in, yeah in, in, in yeah in Chaplin's own life yeah. yeah but you you have like that sequence apparently to get the reaction from the child mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, no children were hurt counts for emotional harm, but apparently Jack Coogan, who was on set, obviously playing like the, um, the devil and playing the, uh, the, the guy at the, st- at the, at the house, uh, he told Jackie Jackie that if he didn't nail the scene, he would send him to an orphanage. Oh my goodness! Oh, oh no, no. <laughs> that breaks my heart. <laughs> but he got it. <laughs> got that before. Then he went, went, like, didn't get to the orphanage <laughs> after all of that. Yeah, it's like, why are you still sending me to the orphanage? <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of the kid, is there anything else we want to discuss that we haven't discussed already? I mean, like, this is a, a film where you could almost go gag by gag, scene by scene, because so many of them are so great. Yeah. I adore, like, the... And again, it's, it's the physical comedy, it's the time routine, but even just, like, the little bit where he's flirting with the uh, police officer's wife. Wife, yeah. yeah. That fixing yeah. window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that entire sequence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is great, and leads to the whole thing where the, the hand is choking him, and yeah. he thinks it's the wife, but then it becomes very clear that it's yeah. not. Yeah, there's so many beats throughout the movie, like... And and it's that thing of you know the simple the supposedly simple setup the tramp the woman the kid the policeman and there you have your whole story you know with those characters but yeah, they're yeah. they're very broad and very yeah. archetypal like none yeah. of them have names yes. yeah yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, apart from john <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um and then there's uh i think it's uh ignati uh, at the the AV club, I apologize for mangling the pronunciation. One of his arguments about what made Chaplin such an iconic performer um, is that, like, unlike say Harold Lloyd or unlike say Buster Keaton, um, first of all, he he had a lot more sentimentality in his work, I think, than say Lloyd or Keaton. Keaton was a bit more cynical, mm-hmm. but he also had his work was designed to be imitable. And I mean, like, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. You have that famous story about Charlie Chaplin losing a Charlie Chaplin lookalike uh, contest. Uh, there's a famous there's a famous story, and again, I don't know how true this is, uh, but it's, it's worth kind of covering anyway. But, like, the day after the... So basically, he filmed, um, I think it's Behind the Screen, which was a short in, in, like, the 11th of November, 1916. So it wasn't even a feature film. But, like, it was reported that on the 12th of November 1916 that all across the United States there were inexplicable paging calls for Mr. Charles Chaplin happening simultaneously. Investigating the bizarre phenomenon, the Boston Society of Psychological Research described the event as a certain phenomenon connected with the simultaneous paging of Mr. Charles Chaplin, motion picture comedian, in more than 800 large hotels in the United States. I like the idea that Chaplin was just that big of a cultural phenomenon there that were, simultaneously 800 hotels paged him. They were just, uh, what, I'm, I'm slightly confused. This is like uh, paging Mr. Chaplin. Paging Mr. Chaplin. Paging, paging Mr. Mr. Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. In, and like over the tannoy. Yeah, <laughs> in 800 hotels simultaneously, apparently. Wow. Which is, is remarkable. But yeah, the idea that like... The Were they tr- a chain? <laughs> well, like a brand promotion. This is before Hilton. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We're gonna, <laughs> for one day, Hilton's going Chaplin. But I, but I like the idea that, that, again, Chaplin's so universal. Like, you have the 
you can recognize Chaplin's face. I mean, there's that famous quote, is it, well, I don't know if it's Walter Kerr, uh, but he said, when you think of Chaplin, you think of cinema. And when you think of cinema, you think of Chaplin. It's that image of the tramp. And it's so simple. Again, you could do it in black and white, but if you were to draw the, okay, maybe if you didn't draw the mustache, maybe do the mustache and the bowler hat. The, the mustache by itself, hat. maybe, yeah. And the big the, shoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a distinctive silhouette, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it just, it's, so universal it's such like and again that's the power of cinema like again it's funny to think of him as a vaudeville star where you have cinema which is this mass-produced medium where yeah. you can have this one image broadcast around the world and just have it become this ubiquitous cultural thing which is just i, I don't know that's amazing to me and that charlie chaplin as a tramp is like one of the earliest examples of that that i can think of I was, I was trying to find this quote because I think it just kind of sums up, um, like of all the, you know, amazing people who've said wonderful things about Chaplin, uh, Dustin Hoffman said something that really kind of hits, hits the kind of nail on the head. And he said, uh, Chaplin is a perpetual outsider and his humour comes from how inappropriately he behaves, which is true of all of us. Uh, we are all perpetual outsiders somewhere deep in us. Otherwise, we wouldn't search for community as hard as we do. And I think that that really kind of sums up why you love Charlie Chaplin so much. It's all that all about that universality of, of the stories and the characters that he, he portrays. Yeah. yeah. And you have the contrast of like yeah. the ultimate outsider, yeah. but in mass media. Yeah. So you bring them together. You're watching him as part of a crowd, yeah. Yeah. which is just astounding. Um, that wonderful sort of paradox. Um, is there anything else that we'd like to talk about with the kid? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Any key scenes, any beats, any themes, any moments even? I, don't, I, I, I think we, sp we spoke a little bit about the brother, but it's kind of like the policeman who stands as this kind of like uh, authority to kind of like cease what, en what anyone is doing kind of in any scene and, and what is all this stop that now? <laughs> Um, just kind of appears and you're like, oh, here, and he just immediately just knocks him out. Yeah. Then, which, 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 which it is this kind of like incredible moment where you, where you're like, oh. <laughs> um, I absolutely, I love, I love the bit. Like again, it's the bit where he's walking back across and the brother won't let it go. And every time he swings and he misses, and Chaplin hits him with the brick and he comes back. And you get the final one where Chaplin's like, no, it's just not worth it anymore. But you get then the moment where he knocks on the door, and it's again, like it's it's the tramp who is as you point out like he's always on he's always the outsider he's he's you know never particularly welcome he's an outcast he's lost he's like he's literally introduced walking among the detritus of society being thrown out the window and like nobody cares to check if there's anybody down there but somehow in spite of that he he's comes romantic. out on top yeah he's, he's romantic yeah. i think um one of his co-stars described him as the first true romantic since lord byron uh, which is quite something to describe <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it, but he always manages to somehow come out on top, or at least like in a way where he might not win, but he's retained his dignity, which is is remarkable. And I think that's yeah, that's probably a large part of the appeal, I suspect. Yeah, he he always sort of retains some sort of value, even if he's you know poor or down and out. By the end of it, he has won something that the other characters in the story will never have. Yeah, uh, yeah that's kind of the remarkable thing about it. All right, so I think that about wraps it up for, for the kid. Um, but in terms of if you want to recommend something for listeners, if you want to point them in the direction of something, now it could be like the film festival is coming up next week, yes. if you want to point them towards something in that that you're particularly excited about, um, or even just in general, if you've been listening to a podcast, TV show, film, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you'd like to point listeners towards? For sure. Um, well, I suppose I will probably 
you know, hope that some people listening might be interested in coming to the festival. Um, so the dates, if you don't know them, are the 20th of February to the 3rd of March. Um, and within Fantastic Flicks, I suppose some highlights, uh, we have a citywide celebration of the Muppet movie on Sunday 24th, which is going to be wonderful. So lots of uh, opportunities to see it because it's 40 years old, which is kind of incredible. It's <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. screening in almost every cinema that yes. the festival's at, which yeah. is an astounding thing. Which is wonderful, yeah. yeah. We're very lucky um, to have so many wonderful venue partners, so Lighthouse, Cineworld, uh, Odeon, and um, I think I'm missing what movies at Dundrum as well. So uh, lots of chances to, to see that. And then we have a wonderful Kenyan film, which is playing both in, in the main programme and within Fantastic Flicks called Rafiki. Um, and that's made by um, this amazing kind of uh, Kenyan director who uh, is one of these kind of artists who's, who's part of a collective um, in Africa, which she likes to call Afro bubblegum culture. And I can't tell you how much and how well that kind of describes the film, because even though it's this kind of love story about these kind of two remarkable, unique women in this kind of, you know, oppressed, small rural village. And even though they have all these kind of challenges and biases and, you know, kind of violence presented to them, that um, they they kind of, you know, manage to overcome that. And there's so much kind of joy and sweetness in this in this particular film. I, w- I would really highly recommend it. It played at Cannes last year um, and it hasn't screened in Dublin, of course. I've, so. uh, yeah, I, 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 I've heard about this movie before. I, I think I was I was listening to some other podcast, not our own, but uh, it, it might have even been The Economist where, where someone had come back from um, Cannes was talking about a few movies. She was asked to kind of like, so what were the highlights? And yeah. I think she specifically mentioned Rafiki. Yeah. 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 Um, so th- that's really wonderful. So you can catch that twice during the festival, I think, on the first Friday the 22nd and also on Tuesday tw- the 26th. Um, nice. Uh, so two opportunities to see that. And then I suppose if I kind of had to recommend another film or another guest, um, really excited that I have Bo Burnham coming over as well. For, for his, 13? For, for the eighth grade. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, another number, but yes, um, for, for eighth grade. And he's going to do a workshop beforehand that day. So I suppose, you know, for, for people who are interested in directing, but also, you know, in Bo's kind of comedic career, um, he's a really exciting guest to have. And he's going to be chatting with... Erin uh, McGahey from Mob Theatre about um, oh, yeah so there'll be a nice nice conversation to be part of as well um, and then Aaron's lots great. yeah she's she's great and obviously as a comedic writer and and she lives in Dublin she now. does yeah yeah, yeah. Um, you know so that I think that will make a really great combination for for, for two people in conversation um, and yeah and then within the main program we've we've lots of really exciting stuff like I, I think like every year there's one film in the festival that's kind of like you know. Um, a badge of honour if you go to see it and I think that this year that is An Elephant Sitting Still uh, which is almost four hours long um, so that's you know two movies for the price of one uh, if you look at it from that point <laughs> is of there view. an intermission? <laughs> <laughs> there is not an intermission <laughs> what? <laughs> no you know it's a yeah so it's I know you guys are gangs of what's a four that's right ago, and there was an intermission <laughs> and I think they were still what five hours? there were five hours yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so slight, slightly shorter, um, but 
I think it will be one of those films that if you get to see it, you you know, you will keep talking about it. Um, I haven't had the chance to see it myself yet, but uh, Guarnier, the festival director, you know, keeps keeps talking about it and what a kind of a remarkable piece of contemporary Chinese cinema it should be seen. Um, and, and on Chinese cinema, I'm really excited for Shadow, the new Zhang Yimou film, which is playing on the first Saturday as well. So if you wanted a really nice double bill on Saturday morning, you could catch both uh, Shadow and, and the Kid, um, which uh, I suppose I, I think is is always a, uh, a nice when you have different memories associated with the festival. And the first film that I saw in the festival, I snuck into the House of Flying Daggers, which is his oh. other film. And I was a teenager. I think I was so short I couldn't even read the subtitles. <laughs> I had to like <laughs> sit up in the chair. But uh, you know, I think that that's the wonderful thing about the festival is that you you have these you know they're not just regular cinema experiences you can often meet filmmakers and see things for the first time or possibly see things that won't be seen in Dublin again no I mean like yeah, I've got many many memories yeah. of the festival like I mean yeah. I remember the, the Saturday morning screen of the raid is one yes. of my one of the highlights of oh. like my cinematic movie going yeah. live which is you're crowned into Savoy 1 at 11am on a Saturday morning uh, with a crowd of people who are there for this you've seen the raid have you? I have, yeah, yeah. yeah but incredible. with a room full of people who are very much in the mood for the raid, uh, it was it's a it three was standing ovations or yep. something, and it just kept going. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I loved the film, and by the third ovation, I was like, "Wow, this is this is making me watch." But I, I keep going. Um, and then there was also, I think, actually, ironically enough, um, the kid was the second highest grossing movie of nineteen twenty one. The highest grossing one was the Fourth Horseman, which I believe also did this did that screen a couple of years ago with an orchestra. That's right. Yeah, uh, was it Dario Marinelli or no? I can't think of it, but yeah, it's um, no, no, I can't remember. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was also on Darren's top fifteen of. 1921. Yeah. <laughs> it, made, it made the top 30. Right? Years, they made, yes. They had to make some, some yeah. cuts there. Um, yeah, it was very fresh and exciting. The blog was just starting back then. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, we were going places. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, that's great. Andrew, would you have anything you'd like to recommend? Um, no, I'd, like, I'd, I, I, would, um, I would give a second to, 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 to a lot of those recommendations. I suppose because I talked about such a terrible uh, breakfast at the beginning, I'd recommend people to combine... Greek yogurt and peanut butter. It's a thing that should be like that you should be able to find. Um, Patent pending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm fine with it being open source. Um, <laughs> it, it's the best. Anyway, yeah. No, I, I, I um, aside from that, <laughs> very good. All okay. right. Um, and yeah, I would, I would also recommend the festival. I go, um, I've gone every year for the past five years. It's an amazing experience. Uh, it is fantastic. Uh, I'm really looking forward to a whole bunch of stuff there. Uh, Rafiki as well, particularly, but uh, things like Eighth Grade, which I now remember the name of properly. Uh, but also even um, things like Papachula, which is the opening film, and even the surprise film, which is always good for the soul even when it's not what you expect it to be. Or especially when it's not what you expect what it to be. What was your favourite surprise film in the last five years? I think that's um, Get Out is probably the, the, yes. the easy answer there. Um, Get Out was yeah. one of the, the yeah. highlights of the... But again, yeah. highlights of festival-going experiences. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, even last year doing Unsane was like a really great choice. Because I mean, the thing about the surprise film is you, you have the people there anyway, so you just you go wild with it. I remember, was it um, Casa de Padre, mm -hmm. uh, which was the Spanish-language... Uh, Will Ferrell um, Mexican telenovel 
Um, <laughs> he can't speak Spanish. He learned all of his lines phonetically. Um, it was something to behold, but watching it with a festival audience was also an experience who were like people who are not expecting, first of all, a Will Ferrell movie. Yes. Second of all, not expecting Will Ferrell in Spanish uh, in a spoof of Mexican telenovelas, which, you know, don't really exist over here. That was a joy. I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, but yeah, so I would, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. It is an amazing experience, just in general. And yeah, it's, it's really great. I, I, can, I can also tell you that it's, it's a special moment for people who work on the festival. We, we tend to, as many of us as possible, show up for the surprise screening. And we stand at the back of the cinema and wait for people's reactions. And it's that like <laughs> half a second between the black and the first frame. And like everyone who's kind of clued into what's coming on release, kind of, you can see the penny drop, you know, with the first round of people. And then, you know, it's not until the title card comes up for the second round. But it's just so much fun. And then there's always people like, what's this? I have, yeah. what's, what's on saying? Yes. Who's doing Soderbergh? I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is always good. But that's all part of the yeah. joy of it too, is finding something different. Yeah. It is indeed. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for time if people are looking for um, a bit more Sarah a bit more Andrew or even if they want to buy tickets or go online or follow the film festival where are they, where are they buying you? Um, if you go to our website it's probably the best place to find us uh, diff.ie um, or through our Facebook Twitter or Instagram pages as well mm-hmm. alright Andrew awesome yeah um, it, like uh, there, there's really not very much point in following me but A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A I mostly just like and retweet things that the <laughs> podcast <laughs> itself posts so yeah um, um yeah and you can follow the podcast yourself directly at the 250 um we should announce it yeah unfiltered uh we should announce actually this is probably a good week to announce it uh we are doing for charity something that is both ambitious and foolhardy um, which is we are going to do a live podcast covering the 18 hours of Twin Peaks The Return. Whose idea was this? <laughs> this was your idea. It started out as a joke you told that I maybe took a bit too seriously. It's probably the short answer to that. Um, all right, anyway, take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week when uh, Giovanna Rampazzo, uh, the leading expert in Indian cinema in Ireland, and Babu Patel, the leading expert on bowling and cricket on the 250. We'll be back talking about Salman Khan's Race 3, a new entry on the bottom 100. Uh, the third entry in the Race Trilogy, one of Bollywood's action movie highlights. So we're Don't worry much... if you haven't seen the first two. <laughs> I think you'll be able to follow it on. It's very much... It's either the Tokyo Drift or the Fast Five of the Race franchise, and we'll find out which one it is next week. Take it easy, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.